You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We as a community have been for the last number of months now traveling through the book of Mark. You have week by week been following Jesus through the book of Mark, and as you arrive now to to just weeks from the celebration of Easter, we're going to be following Jesus through some of his last hours of life. So today, the scripture reading will be from Mark chapter 14, and we'll be joining Jesus in his final night with his disciples. And so if you have a Bible at home, you can turn it to Mark 14. We're going to begin listening to the scriptures in verse 26, or you can just listen along. And I'm going to invite you, whether you're in here or at home, simply to pause with me to pray for a moment as we ready ourselves to listen to the scriptures. So let's pray together. God the Lord, let us hear what you will speak now. Whether we this morning find ourselves full of faith or full of questions, full of peace or full of worry, whether we're comfortable or desperate, let us hear what you will speak this morning. For you will speak peace to your people to those who turn to you in their hearts. Through Christ the faithful one. Amen. Friends, if you would, listen with open ears now to these words from the Word of God from Mark chapter 14. When they, that is Jesus and the disciples, had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Get up, 
The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So, when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even at this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him to blindfold him and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! The guards also took him over and beat him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. A little while later, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse and swore an oath 
I do not know the man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for a second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Friends, this is God's word. The rooster jolted me awake at 3.45 in the morning. I was staying several years ago with a, with a family in the West Bank, in the Bethlehem area, in Israel and Palestine, midway through a 10-day trek around the country. And I was staying for a few days at the time with a Palestinian Christian family. They were warm and hospitable and generous to me, but they had me sleep in a bed in their apartment in which they had mounted a rooster's cage directly next to the window right above the bed where I slept night by night. And each night, that rooster determined that I would wake before the sun rose, and it was successful each and every, each and every evening. There was even a night when I was sharing dinner with this family as they had made crist- uh, chicken crusted in za'atar spices, where as I was chewing a bite, I caught myself praying, Lord, in your mercy, let this be that rooster. Let this be that rooster. But sadly, it was not that rooster. And that rooster woke me again that night at 3.45 in the morning, like clockwork. But as I laid there awake in the pre-dawn darkness, I couldn't help but think of that infamous rooster's crow that we heard in this story two millennia ago, just a few miles north from where I laid not sleeping that night. This story is now one of the most famous stories in the scriptures. It's a story that, as it turns, intimate and powerful It's dramatic, but I also want you to see this. It is also a wonder that we have this story at all. And I think that we have it is a clue to us of what it has to teach us. Let me color in a little bit of background for you. By the time the the four Gospels, the four versions of Jesus' life that we have in the Scriptures, were being written down, Peter was one of the most well-known leaders in the Christian movement. Peter was the first overseer of the church in Rome, the very center of the empire, and he had become one of the most famous Christians of all of them. There is a second century Christian writer named Papias who records in his writings how it was that the book of Mark came to be written down. Mark, from, from whom the gospel is named, was Peter's, Peter's associate. He was his assistant, and he was also his interpreter. And, and Mark, over time, wrote down and recorded and then arranged Peter's preaching of the Lord's sayings and the story of his life. And that eventually became what we now call the gospel according to Mark. So, Think about that with me. What do our public figures do when there is a scandal or an embarrassment in their lives that comes to light? What do they do when when the Access Hollywood tape goes viral or when the expose story starts trending on Twitter? Well, they, they deny it or they cover it up. or They change the conversation, sweep it under the rug. So remember, what we now call the book of Mark 
is in essence a distilled summary of Peter's preaching. This means that we have in Mark chapter 14 on record the very lowest and most embarrassing moment of Peter's entire life, not because his enemies uncovered it or his critics kept it in circulation, but because Peter himself would have told this story over and over and over again. He would have told it and he would have retold it shamelessly. I think that the existence of this story in the book of Mark, it shows us how Jesus transforms how we relate to our weaknesses, our letdowns, our moments of faltering, and our deep failures. This story, and the story of Peter here, it has profound spiritual wisdom to teach us. There's a Christian thinker and pastor named John Calvin who highlights this in his writings about this story. I want you to listen to what he says. He says this. He says, Peter's fall, here described, brilliantly mirrors our own infirmity. His repentance, in turn, is a memorable demonstration for us of God's goodness and mercy. The story told of one man contains a teaching of prime benefit for the whole church. You know, I like how he says that. This story is a mirror for us. It shows us how Jesus meets us as we falter and as we fail, as we reach our limitations, as we find ourselves at the end of our rope. And so I want to invite you for a few minutes this morning simply to make your way together with me into this story and to allow it to be a mirror for you, to see if you don't find something of yourself in it. So, as I mentioned, uh, as we join Jesus in Mark 14, uh, we are journeying with Jesus on his final night. He has here just shared an intimate last meal with his closest friends, and then they, in turn, after finishing the dinner and song, shared a night climb out from the city of Jerusalem and up the steep slope of the Mount of Olives together. And as they stand atop the slope of the Mount of Olives, looking down on the city blanketed in darkness, Jesus quotes a line from the Hebrew prophet Zechariah to tell them soberly and knowingly what's ahead. He turns to his friends and he says, before all of this is over, all of you are going to wind up deserting me. Peter and the others, they're outraged. And they protest. But Jesus knows the fickleness that is behind the bravado. There's a leading biblical scholar named Raymond Brown who, in his writings about, about this part of Jesus' story, says that one of the main motifs in this part of the book of Mark is what he calls the total abandonment of Jesus by his disciples. And we watch this happen by turns as the story unfolds. At first and most obviously, there's, there's Judas. From atop the steep slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have actually had an extended period of time to watch the torchlights dotting the darkness as the angry crowd makes their way up the hill to find him and drag him down to Jerusalem. And who is at the front of them? Judas, 
One of the twelve, Mark reminds us. One of those who had, who had followed Jesus all around Israel. Who had laughed with him, shared meals with him, slept out under the stars with him. Judas. This is the moment where Judas, now and for all time, becomes the betrayer. And then, there's the rest of the disciples. After swearing their lives to Jesus, the disciples, in turn, doze off while he agonizes. And then, when the crowd comes after him, they flee into the darkness. There's even one young disciple, who some early church leaders think is perhaps Mark himself, that as he's caught by the shoulder, tears off without his tunic, and actually runs naked into the night. Mark intends a deep and sad irony as we watch this unfold. If you remember back to the very first chapter of the book of Mark, Mark tells us that many of these same disciples, as Jesus calls them to join him in life, they leave aside their family members, they leave the towns where they're from, and they leave their family businesses to go and become his disciples. They leave everything to follow Jesus. But here and now, in this hour, they leave everything even in one case, the clothing on their backs, to get away from Jesus. And then there's Peter. In the dramatic final section of the reading that we heard together, we watch Peter as he denies Jesus. Upstairs, Jesus has been dragged into the manse of the Jerusalem high priest and put on trial as a heretic and a dangerous revolutionary. Peter's followed at a distance all the way into the high priest's courtyard, and he loiters at a distance at first. But the night begins to grow chilly, and Peter inches toward the fire's warmth, only to then find himself caught in its flickering light. One of the servant girls who had been around the proceedings upstairs wanders outside on an errand, perhaps, and she notices Peter. She notices the light flickering across his face. And she says to him, well, you, were, you were with him. You were with the guy. Now, Peter, at first, simply feigns ignorance. He starts small. I, I don't know. I, I can't understand what you're saying. But all of the whispers and the questions keep growing until Peter is spewing profanity. And then, in the gray early dawn, there is the peal of a rooster's crow. Mark wants that moment, Peter's triple denial and his bitter tears, to be a teacher for us. And so I want to simply invite you, as we place ourselves in this story, to let it be a mirror for you, to hold it up to the story of your own life. Where do you find yourself in this story? Where do you see a resemblance between yourself and the characters that surround Jesus? This morning, uh, we are arrive at the fifth Sunday in Lent. And if you're like me, this is about the time of year when I realize all too painfully my embarrassing inconsistency in life as a follower of Jesus. I realize the ways that I falter, fail, fall asleep on the job routinely. Perhaps you realize that yourself too. You started off Lent and were determined. You were going to pray on a regular basis. You were going to read the scriptures. You were going to do the Bible plan that Matt had been sending out to the church. You were going to fast from red wine and chocolate 
and Netflix. Fast forward to this past Thursday night, you were sitting in your living room with a big glass of Malbec dipping chocolate into it while you watched Netflix. Now, it doesn't take long for us to realize our embarrassing inconsistency in following Jesus. And then, truth be told, we find ourselves in a strange and unique time in the middle of a pandemic. If you're like me, it might be hard to even remember what you said you were going to do for Lent. Uh, Perhaps, like me, you you find yourself simply and utterly exhausted by day-to-day life right now. You're not thinking about communing with Jesus. You're just trying to think about staying numb and making it through. Perhaps you, as you, as you look at the, the business that you're responsible for, the organization that you work for, you're desperately trying to figure out how to keep things moving forward and attempting to cut corners because that's just what has to happen. Uh, perhaps you, you shrink back from the call of Jesus that you hear in the scriptures and all kinds of little ways in, in your own life. If you, like me, find a lot of yourself in the characters in this story. So I don't want to help you to see. This is one way in which I think when we step back and look at this story, we see the way in which both people who practice religion as we normally understand it, and folks, those of us who who practice and live our lives kind of within the modern Western secular story of life, really play life by the same rules. You see, if you are somebody that practices religion as we typically think about it, whether you're faithful and believe the right things is what counts at the end of the day. And for those of us that, for whom you might not consider yourself an overly religious person, uh, you, you still play your life according to the rules of the game that dictate that whether or not you succeed or achieve is what matters. Your track record, your, your successes, the letters after your name, these are the things that matter at the end of the day. And if you live inside of that story, Failure, faltering, coming up small in big moments, those things will crush you. But if you live your life according to the story of the gospel, according to the story of Jesus, failure doesn't crush you. Failure transforms you. We see this. And the way that Mark tells us the story of Jesus, set amidst all of his friends who are deserting him, denying him, and betraying him. Biblical scholars often talk about how one of of Mark's rhetorical techniques is that he tells stories in a sandwich. He will tell one story, he'll set in the midst of it another character, and then finish with the same story again in order to highlight what's at the center. And in Mark 14, what's at the center are these two compelling pictures of Jesus. All the stories of the disciples falling asleep on the job, running into the woods in the night, or denying that they even know Jesus, they bracket these two dramatic scenes of Jesus that we witness in this chapter. First, in the beginning part of the chapter, we watch Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is one of the most intimate glimpses that we have of Jesus at his most raw and undone. 
Peter's eventual triple denial of him is countered by Jesus' three times repeated prayer to the Father in anguish, in which he ultimately commits himself to die for the disciples who have fallen asleep on him, who wind up deserting him, and who eventually deny him. Peter's failures, in other words, are counteracted here by Jesus' faithfulness. There are echoes in this garden scene, of an older garden scene as well, too. As we zoom out and take in the whole sweep of the scriptural story, Mark wants us to see that Jesus' resolve to listen to the voice of the Father overcomes and undoes the ancient disobedience of humanity in the Eden Garden, which begins the story of Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, humanity disobeys the voice of the Father, and all the cosmos is plunged into ruin. Here, Jesus listens to the voice of the Father and heals the world, even at the cost of his own life. And then, later we watch Jesus on trial. Jesus is drugged to the manse of the high priest, and there is this powerful, a few good men-esque moments. If you're old enough and you remember that movie, there's a powerful scene between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in which you know, he says, I, you know, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I envision something like that is going on as Jesus stands before the high priest. The high priest demands, are you the Messiah? And Jesus, in turn, one-ups him and claims the very name of God itself. Are you the Messiah? I am. Jesus here claims the divine name, and he borrows a line from the Hebrew prophet Daniel, from Daniel 7, as he calls himself the Son of Man. The book of Daniel, the Son of Man, is a long-promised human figure who somehow shares mysteriously in the life and authority of God himself, that God had promised he would act through to once and for all put the world right, to rescue it, to heal it. Mark wants us to see that Jesus, standing in the middle of that cooked-up trial, willingly suffering injustice, silent in the face of accusers, bloodied and betrayed, and ultimately willingly shouldering the cross to bear away our sin and plunged into the blackness of death. This is what it looks like when God steps into the world. This is what it looks like when God shows us his face. This is what it looks like when the Lord acts to rescue us once and for all. You see, in the story of Mark that we heard together, the disciples' desertions, their weakness, and their failures, these things are simply a frame that highlights all the more beautifully Jesus' dying love and his dogged faithfulness. Let me simply, in closing, draw out two, two practical implications of this picture for, for your life and for mine. First, for, for those of you who wouldn't consider yourself Christian, this story highlights for us the unique beauty and logic of Christian faith. What this story shows us is that weakness and failure are actually how you come to know God. Weakness and failure are actually the conditions in which you begin a life together with God through Jesus. I play on a, on a rugby club, and 
I remember some months ago having a conversation after one particular practice with someone who shared the inevitable awkward moment with me of asking as we were cleaning up afterwards, so what is it that you do anyway? And after I told him, well, I'm, I'm a pastor, he said to me, you know, I had actually been thinking recently, I really need to get my act together and go, go to church sometime. Once I get my act together, I'm, I should go to church sometime. I'm going to do that. This is what I said. I said, well, listen, here's the good news, my friend. Christianity is actually for people who don't have their act together. In fact, the only way you can enter into a Christian life is by admitting, with no bones about it, that you'll never have your act together. This is who Jesus is for. So if you're somebody for whom whom you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want you to see in this story that it's actually the conditions of, of your weakness, your failure, your falterings, all the ways that you don't have your act together, that is actually the ground on which you start a beautiful life with God. Uh, secondly, for those of us who have been follower of, followers of Jesus, whether for months or years or decades, I want you to see this. Uh, weakness, limitations, faltering, failure, these are, uh, these are not only the ways in which we begin a life with God, They are also how we grow wise and deep and mature and strong in a life with God. You never, as a follower of Jesus, grow beyond recognizing yourself in these faltering disciples. The good news of this story is that Almighty God loves faltering, weak, inconsistent Christians. If you're a Christian, and the story of Jesus, the gospel, is the center of your being, you don't need to, on the one hand, either minimize all the ways that your life falters and is weak and comes up small and crucial moments, or, on the other hand, to obsess about them. Those moments merely are a gateway in which you will, in deeper and deeper ways, experience the extravagance of of grace. Those moments become the holy ground as you continually come back to the center of the good news of Jesus. Those moments become the holy ground on which you will taste in deeper and deeper fashion God's scandalous faithfulness to you in Jesus. This is the good news of this story that Peter told every day of his life. Do you falter in big moments? Okay. Jesus has never faltered for you. Have you let God down in some significant way? Here's the good news. Jesus knows, and he still has never let you down. Have you missed the mark? Here's the good news. Jesus loves failures. Have you not been faithful in some way? Here's the good news. Jesus has always been faithful to you. Weakness and failure, they're how you sink deep roots into a life with God who's shown us his face in this suffering Nazarene. There's another rooster's crow that trumpets that same good news powerfully that I'll close by sharing with you. One of my favorite novels is a novel by a Japanese writer named Shusaku Endo. 
It's a novel called Silence. It was actually adapted to film several years ago by Martin Scorsese. And if you've, if you've not read the novel, it, it tells the story of a character who is a Jesuit Christian priest named Father Rodriguez. Father Rodriguez is a man of rigorous and unflinching faith, and he goes to Japan as a missionary. Father Rodriguez loves to contemplate the face of Jesus. He considers the face of Christ more beautiful than anything in the entire world. But as the story winds on, he comes to struggle deeply with the silence of God that he experiences in his own life. He's eventually captured by the Japanese military, and he's interrogated and tortured, and he's told near the climax of the story by his interrogator that he can escape with his life and avoid torture and death if he will trample on a fumi, which is a, which is a Japanese bronze image of Jesus that Japanese Christian communities would make. He's told that if he would trample on a fumi, trample on an image of the face of Christ, that he'd be allowed to escape with his life. Father Rodriguez resists, and he resists, but then eventually he gives in. I want you to watch and listen to what happens as Father Rodriguez finally falters and gives in and agrees to trample on an image of the face of his beloved Jesus. This is what happens. He says, the priest raises his foot. In it he feels a dull, heavy pain. This is no mere formality. He will now trample on what he has considered the most beautiful thing in his life, on what he has believed most pure, on what is filled with the ideals and dreams of man. How his foot aches. And then, the Christ in bronze speaks to the priest. Trample. Trample. I more than anyone know of the pain in your foot. Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. The priest placed his foot on the fumi. Dawn broke. And far in the distance, the cock crew. Liberty Church. In your weakness and faltering, in your failing and denying, may you in those moments experience the one who came to be trampled for you, who carried the cross to share your pain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for the glorious news that we see in this dark and sober hour in Jesus' final hours, that you love failures, that you come to be trampled for weak people and are not ashamed to call us your own. We pray that in our experience of our limits, our weakness, our faltering, that we would come to know your extravagant grace in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.